Well, anyways, as I was saying, I had an opportunity to meet with some pastors. And our special guest speaker this past week, it was on Thursday, was a a fellow uh, pastor, missionary, who had served in Europe for 15 years. And as you know, Europe is kind of basically a post-Christian world. In fact, uh, many things, in many ways, uh, Europe is ahead of us as far as the effects of living in a post-Christian world, uh, where... uh, (laughs) Where basically where they are is where we will probably be in, you know, 15, 10 years or 10, 15 years or so. And uh, so Europe is, is oftentimes considered as a, a, a model what goes on in Europe, even in, our, even in our country as a whole, people imitate Europe. But even the church, we kind of look to them and say, that's what it's going to look like to minister the gospel in a post-Christian world, in a, in a world that's becoming increasingly secular, increasingly void of any uh, really concern for the things of God. And there was, a, the speaker said many things, but one thing that stood out to me uh, was this phrase that he stated, but I, I believe it's, it's, it's a true phrase. I heard it elsewhere, but uh, just stood out to me once again. And he says this, or he said this, something to this effect, that we live among a world that wants the kingdom, but not the king. We live in a world that wants the kingdom, but not the king. You know, uh, and that is, that is the, people want the things that are the blessings of the kingdom, the things that the kingdom of Christ is going to bring about, but they don't really want the king, Jesus Christ. For instance, in our present day in the American church, uh, we, uh, we desire to be relevant with our culture, and if we want to be relevant with our culture, we, we'll, we'll talk about the, the latest issues in our society. We'll talk about, we can talk with them about fighting poverty, we can talk about fighting human trafficking, bringing an end to human trafficking. We can talk about bringing, finding solutions to ending drug abuse. We can talk about pursuing justice, pursuing racial reconciliation, pursuing equality, and, or even the preservation of the environment, the world. And all these things, the Bible would have something to speak to. In fact, all these things are, 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 are part of kingdom blessings. And the world, as long as we're talking about just the issues themselves... The world's going to say, yeah, I agree with you. I want to end uh, slavery. Yes, I want to fight injustice. Yes, I, I'm with you. I want to uh, preserve this world, protect this world that, we are, uh, given, that has been given to us. The world is eager to pursue these things with us. But the problem is they don't want Jesus Christ. As soon as you bring up Jesus, as soon as we bring up Christ is the solution to all the world's problems, and say, whoa, hold up. That's where I, I draw the line. In short, the world wants the, the riches of the kingdom, all the things that the kingdom will provide without the rule of the king. But what the world does not understand is that the problems of this world, all of the society's problems, all of the, 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 uh, the things that make this world, the, the fallen world that it is, because of, is because of the curse of sin. And they, these problems will never be removed until the king returns to establish his kingdom on earth. A kingdom where all these society's issues are resolved, are brought to an end, because he brings an end to sin. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. And it is our mission as the church to proclaim the King, Jesus Christ, and his relevance to all mankind. It's fitting today, then, as we come to today's passage, 
this passage where Jesus uh, ministers in his hometown of Nazareth, we see a very similar situation where the people there, they want the blessings of the kingdom, but they don't want the king. They don't want Jesus. It's like some people who come to Jesus today who want all the blessings. They want the, maybe they think that, oh, I can get peace or I can get success in my job or I think I can get some kind of, you just name it, I can get A's in school or I can get a, a, a spouse or I can get, you know, just maybe some connections. All these things that you might get within the life of, a, of this community. But I don't want Jesus Christ. I don't want to. I'll give lip service. I'll sing songs about him, but don't ask me to obey him completely. This, te- this text uh, teaches us that you that in this that we cannot have the kingdom blessings without the king. Jesus will make that clear. And the text teaches the significance uh, of Jesus's ministry, and particularly characteristics of Jesus's ministry, and they become. As we are now followers of Christ, as we fulfill, continue his mission to make disciples, the characteristics of Jesus' ministry are the characteristics of our ministry. Just as an outline for where we've been or where we're, and where we're heading, we just completed the section about the preparation for the ministry of Jesus. He's been prepared by, uh, in four different ele- events, that he is the qualified son of God. He's the qualified Messiah. And but now in 414 through all the way through 950, we're going to see that he begins this lengthy section of ministry called the Galilean ministry of Jesus. It's the it's Luke's first record of Jesus's public ministry. And Luke four, chapter four is essentially a summary of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke will choose basically uh, two cities, Nazareth and Capernaum, which we'll see look at next next time, and he'll. By telling us events that take place in these two cities really summarizes for us what takes place throughout Jesus' early ministry. Uh, what's even more interesting is that this little section, this is where Jesus appears in uh, Nazareth, in this incident where he uh, opens up the scriptures, is only found in the Gospel of Luke. It's, not, it's unique to Luke. N- neither Matthew nor Mark nor John record this, issues, uh, this event. But Luke includes it so that we might see in this event, as well, in the, as well as in the next one in Capernaum, a summary of what Jesus' earthly ministry, his early ministry on earth was like. And we learn in the section, basically a basic outline, three points, three defining characteristics of Jesus' ministry. And as we look at these ministries, we, we can appreciate his ministry, but also they'll encourage us, the church, as we carry out our mission, particularly our mission in this city in a, and in this country, in a very post-Christian world. All right, so let's, uh, let's take a look at these three points. First of all, Luke teaches us about Jesus' ministry, and that Jesus' ministry was characterized by spirit empowerment. He does this in verse 14 to 15. Look at verse 14 to 15 with me. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Uh, essentially, 14 and 15 are a summary of Luke's summary. Chapter 14 is a summary of Jesus, or chapter 4 is a summary of uh, Jesus' early ministry. 14 and 15 are a summary of that summary. You know, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, if you've never heard that term, I might mention every once in a while, the Synoptic Gospels are basically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
uh, and John is not considered synoptic gospel, but the synoptic gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all begin the description of Jesus' public ministry with this section, this Galilean ministry, that he talks about how he begins in Galilee. And, and many of us, sometimes if you're just not careful, you're just reading your Bible and you, you miss John, you don't get to John in time, you think that Jesus begins his public ministry in Galilee. But that would be wrong. Okay? That would be wrong chronologically. For in John's gospel, in John chapters 1 through 4, if you have a chance to do, do a, a kind of harmony of the gospel, you'll find out that in John chapters 1 to 4, we learn that Jesus actually has a very significant period of ministry, about a, a, almost a year long, in and around Judea, especially Jerusalem. So that's kind of just neat to say, why, Bible trivia, next time you play Bible trivia. And, this, and, then, and he's actually ministers in Jerusalem. He does some things, does some miracles. He actually goes into uh, Cana, uh, Galilee a little bit. He does, goes to Capernaum. And then he, but he goes back to Jerusalem. He's primarily in Jerusalem that first year. And then he eventually heads into Galilee where he fulfills this Galilean ministry. But Luke gives an overview here in these verses of Jesus' ministry that will be seen in further detail in the rest of the chapter. Now, we could make several observations about Jesus' ministry just in these two verses. I, I was just thinking, man, I could preach a message just on these two verses, just about Jesus' ministry, but I won't. So, but we can find there's one thing that Luke intentionally draws our attention to about Jesus' ministry in verse 14 and 15. There's one thing, and if you've been with us, I hope you, you, you see it there. I hope you can't miss it, is that as Jesus returned to Galilee, he returned to Galilee from, from Jerusalem, he returned in the power of the Spirit. So Luke wants us to understand if, that the overarching characteristic of Jesus' ministry, especially in light of the few verses later, later on, is Jesus' ministry is a Spirit-empowered ministry. That it's a, something that is led by, empowered, guided, directed by the Spirit of God. All throughout the Gospel of Luke so far, we've seen the presence of the Spirit. Everyone surrounding Jesus' birth is filled with the Spirit, right? John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit. Uh, Jesus' mother Mary, uh, Mary's uh, relative Elizabeth, her husband Zacharias, Simeon who holds Jesus in the temple that first time, also filled with the Spirit. All these people around Jesus' life are filled with the Spirit, are full of the Spirit. What's more, John foretells when he uh, is baptized, he tells that one is coming after me, the Messiah, who will be mightier than him. Why? Because the one who comes after him will baptize not with water, but with what? With the Spirit and with fire. So Jesus, and so it's not, no mistake then that as he's after speaking that, Jesus comes, gets baptized, and then what's the most significant thing that Luke points out? The Spirit comes down, right? Descends in a bodily form, like a dove, upon Jesus, and then God says, this is my beloved Son, the Spirit of God. And so from that point on, the Spirit is, is, uh, is clearly upon Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 1, we looked at last week, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted, but how is it recorded? Jesus, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness, the Spirit of God is, is working powerfully in and around and through the life of Jesus. It's no mistake then that as Jesus begins his ministry, Luke tells us that when Jesus returned to Galilee, he did so in the power of the Spirit. His source of strength and might for the ministry come from the Holy Spirit. He preaches in the power of the Spirit. He performs miracles in the power of the Spirit. There was spirit empowerment in his ministry, and everyone witnessed it, 
and the word, it says here in verse 14, spread. His, actually, the word is, could be tra- is the word from which we get the word fame. His fame spread all through Galilee. What's more, a few verses later, we're going to find out the significance of this spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus. It's because that the, Isaiah prophesied that spirit-empowered ministry would be a marker of whom? The Messiah. So then we, if Isaiah uh, prophesies of spirit-empowered ministry, we ask ourselves, what would that look like? How would the Israelites know when someone comes with spirit-empowered ministry? Spirit-empowered ministry? Is it the miracles? Is it his good deeds? Would it be his background? Of all these things, and though they do in many ways reflect the spirit-empowered ministry for Jesus, it is not what Luke emphasizes. When he describes the spirit-empowered ministry, look at how he describes in verse 15. Jesus came back in the power of the spirit, news about him spread throughout the district, and what was he doing? He began teaching. I don't even know, like, began. I think he was teaching. This is an imperfect tense in the Greek. It's different from the other tenses in this verse, in the, in the verse before it. It implies that this was what he was continually doing throughout his ministry. He was teaching continually in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. Jesus' spirit-empowered ministry was marked by teaching, by teaching, teaching, which we're going to find in the gospel Jesus' teaching, as you know, was known, had a reputation. It was a reputation of truth. It was a reputation of having authority, not like their scribes. You ever hear somebody, you know, all they do when they preach is they, they just quote this author, quote this author, quote that author. You say, who are you preaching? Are you preaching God, Christ? Are you preaching man? It's not wrong to quote men, by the way. But when Jesus taught, he did not say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said this, and you've heard that Rabbi so-and-so said this. When Jesus taught, he taught the word of God with authority. He taught it as the word of God. And it was clearly obvious to all who heard him that his was a spirit-empowered teaching. And they heard his words, and what was the response of the people? Look at verse 15. He was praised by all. Now, get, uh, I want you to know, this is not what you guys do to me after every sermon. When you come and say, oh, Pastor Henry, thanks for that sermon. That was real good. It's not that, okay? It's not that praise wall. Even though, it, you know, I, I understand this. You might think, oh, that's the, that's the idea. But this word praised is a word that is normally, usually, most of the times used of what? Of praise of God. A lot of times it's translated glorify. In fact, Luke, everywhere else in Luke where this word appears... It's only used of glorifying God. It's only used of praising God. See, everywhere that Jesus was going, everybody heard his teaching. They heard it was, it was, it was authoritative. It was true. It was clearly spirit-empowered. To them, it was clearly spirit-empowered teaching, spirit-empowered message, and everyone praised him for it, as praising him as God. So the contrast is that when he comes to Nazareth, he doesn't quite get the same response. He doesn't get the the response that he that everywhere else people were doing now Jesus ministry was a spirit empowered ministry and before we move on I just want to apply some application for us for you and me this is encouraging for us for as you and I fulfill our great commission where we also are called to go out there and teach the gospel preach the gospel we're to share the good news of Jesus Christ but I love how Jesus does not depend upon his own power as the son of God but he depended upon the spirit of God for ministry. And therefore, so can you and me, right? 
Because the same spirit that empowered him empowers those of us who believe in him. Right? He empowers us. In the, that same spirit empowers us. Remember what his, Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus understands that they're going to be his witnesses. But he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, when you, are, when you receive this, you will have power to be my witnesses. You see, the power to make disciples Jesus Christ does not come from ourselves in and of ourselves. That would be a mistake when we do that. It does not come from our own strength, our own skill, or our own knowledge. The power to make disciples of Jesus Christ comes from the spirit that dwells within the members of Christ's church. Now, of course, our problem is that we do not depend upon the spirit for ministry. In many ways, because we have means, because we have strength, because we have our own natural abilities, we depend upon our own selves as we go about our, the, the ministry of the gospel. And when we, and when we depend upon ourselves and depend upon the spirit for the ministry, we will find that it becomes weak, becomes inefficient. See, when we are prayerfully dependent upon the Spirit, we will see the power of God work, not in signs and wonders, but in the most visible miracle of all, the conviction and repentance of a sinner to God in faith. Right? Isn't that the greatest miracle of all? All of us who are dead in our sins would finally acknowledge the fact that we're, oh, I'm a sinner. And realize that I need salvation through faith in Christ. The Spirit of God, what's more, works in leading us, helping us, providentially opening doors for the gospel for us. Most of all, the Spirit of God brings conviction in us. In the, in the words, in the heart of the hearer that, we were, that we're teaching or, or, or sharing the gospel with. So let us, as a church, just remember to be committed to spirit-empowered ministry, to be constantly praying about the work that we're about. It is so easy, and I throw myself in the mix, to just go about doing what we do and forgetting how much we depend upon the spirit to do the work. To do the work of the ministry in of, our, in of all, our own strength, apart from the Spirit, is a vain work. It is going to be what 1 Corinthians 3 calls wood, hay, stubble. But Jesus' ministry was a Spirit-empowered ministry. Now, the second divining characteristic of Jesus' ministry is not only the Spirit is that it is characterized by Spirit empowerment, but it was characterized by gospel teaching. You guys, you start seeing a pattern here is this, that Jesus was full of the Spirit and he was teaching in the power of the Spirit. And remember, when we preached about making disciples, by the way, what is the heart of making disciples? What's the, the primary, what does it look like? It's simply speaking the Word of God, the truths of God, and the power of God. And Jesus does that. So we see that his gospel teaching in the ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus' early ministry is primarily a ministry of teaching. When we think of Jesus, what he came to do, he came to teach, as we're going to see in this description of Jesus' ministry to his hometown of Nazareth. You know, if you think about Jesus' ministry when he came to earth, he really had a twofold ministry. He came with a teaching ministry, and he came with a dying ministry. He came to teach the gospel, to proclaim salvation, to proclaim the gospel, 
but near the end of his life, near the latter part, so usually of most Gospels, you start seeing him heading towards Jerusalem to accomplish the one thing that, that he came to do, to die, to die on the cross for our sins. But here we see the teaching ministry of Jesus. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now this is uh, significant because Jesus came to Nazareth. Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. So this is where he had been brought up. This was uh, going to the synagogue on the Sabbath in Nazareth was Jesus' custom. This is something he had grown up doing. He had been doing this for 30 years. In fact, every faithful Israelite, every Sabbath day, would have gathered with their community to, for worship and instruction in their synagogues. And Jesus, being raised in a godly family, also participated in the synagogue. So this was his custom. This was his pattern. So everyone here at the synagogue knew Jesus. Jesus was coming to his hometown. They had seen him grown up. They knew his family. They knew his brothers and sisters. They knew his life. They knew, uh, and, and they knew everything about him. And they were excited because, remember, his fame was spreading about. They were hearing about Jesus. They were probably excited for him because all of a sudden, one of their native sons, their hometown sons, was coming back, had come returned. And word had reached them of the things that he had done elsewhere. They had heard about the miracles. They had probably maybe heard about the baptism. They may have heard about uh, just uh, some of the miracles that he had done. They had heard about his teaching and all these things. And so Jesus coming back to his hometown was honored by the synagogue leader. The synagogue leader, some, in some way, we don't see the mention in the text, but obviously it had to be this, that invited him, allowed him to participate in the service. And in the service in those days, they would take time to read from the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and then they would take time to read a passage from the prophets, the rest of the, the scriptures. Jesus had the opportunity here, the blessing, to read from the prophets. What does he do? Verse 17 to 20, let's pick up where he, what he does in the synagogue. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus' chosen text that morning was Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And it was probably a little unusual to them that Jesus as he was reading 61, verse 1 and 2, he, he stopped in the middle of verse 2. He didn't complete the verse. It uh, kind of just ends halfway. And I've explained to you the reason for that in other sermons. We preach Isaiah 61. Just listen online for that. I don't want to go into those details here, okay? But the significance of Isaiah 61 is that it describes, basically, the spirit-empowered mission of the Messiah. And the spirit presence in the Messiah, the anointed one, would enable the Messiah, the Messianic king, to fulfill his mission. A mission according to Isaiah, according as Jesus reads here, a mission that would involve preaching the gospel to the, the poor, that is the afflicted, to proclaim freedom to those who are captive to sin, to proclaim sight to those who are in darkness, to set free those oppressed by sin, and finally to proclaim the Lord's favor, that is the Lord's grace that is now being offered. And Isaiah, in his text, 
teaches that all this will take place when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. All these blessings that are going to be announced and proclaimed are because the Messiah comes and establishes kingdom. And this was all, this was like, when you, when you preach a sermon, there are some texts that everybody loves to hear. And this is one of those sermons. We call it a jugular text. It's one of those texts that just go to throw everybody like, oh, yes, I, I want that sermon. Oh, yeah, preach that because that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of truth I love to hear about. It's like if I come and preach to you about John 3, 16, you say, yes, PH, preach that because I love the gospel. Jesus came and he was basically preaching a message that every Israelite loved, loved to hear. They all loved to hear about the kingdom. They all loved to hear these blessings. They all longed to hear about free, uh, good news, uh, freedom, recovery of sight, free, uh, liberty. They all loved to hear about the favor of God upon Israel. And this would all, and, but they, this would all take place when the Messiah comes. Sadly, for many Israelites, they thought that this was a, a physical deliverance, a deliverance from political oppression from Ro- to Rome. Jesus then closes the book. They stand to read the scripture, and then they sit. They sit down, not to say that they're done, but they sit down because that's, the, that's how they preach. I, would, I should try that next time. You know, I'll just sit here on a little mat and get this, this big wood out of the way, and you all stand. <laughs> but they sit to teach okay so he sat down and that's why every eye is looking upon him because they're expecting him they heard he, he's a great teacher so what's Jesus going to say he just read Isaiah 61 we don't know what uh, passage out of the law was read but nevertheless he's going to give a message everyone was expecting him to teach with authority just they had heard what would he teach would he deliver a sermon that would be different than from what the scribes taught. Word was spreading around that his teaching was different, and they were about to find out how so. Verse 21, here's the extent of his sermon. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like, um, mic drop, right? Right there. You know, there's there not a single ear in that room that did not understand what he meant. This was something they all looked for, the hope of the blessings of the kingdom through the coming Messiah. And he says, today it has been fulfilled in your presence. And so no wonder, everybody understood what he said. He said the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is, the promises are being fulfilled. And all, verse 22, were speaking well of him. Oh, that's a good sermon. Amen. There's salvation. Praise the Lord. They were wondering at the gracious words. These were encouraging words. This was, like, this was giving hope to people. And they were saying, though, is this not Joseph's son? Jesus basically answers that all they had hoped for was now fulfilled. You want good news for the afflicted? You want release for captives? You want sight for the blind? You want freedom for the oppressed? These are all fulfilled in the Messiah, and the Messiah is here, and I am the Messiah. Now, the initial response to Jesus is one of praise and wonder. They are overjoyed at the sermon that offers this fulfillment of their hope. They love the sermon, but there was a little doubt in their minds, and a lot of doubt. They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And before we get that, we'll get to that in the next point. But nevertheless, 
He is the Messiah. It was true. Jesus had come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that through faith in him, one could enter into the kingdom of God. When in his presence, the king had arrived, and these blessings were now, made of, uh, were now going to be made freely available to them through faith in him. Jesus' ministry was a clear gospel preaching, good news preaching ministry. Listen to Matthew and Mark's uh, uh, basically summary of Jesus' ministry, parallel to uh, verse 14 and 15 of, of chapter 4. Now after, Mark says, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, what was he doing? Preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He came preaching the good news of God. And the good news is this, that the time is fulfilled. Basically, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's at hand. It's near. And it's because it's near because the king is here. And so what is the response? Repent then from your sins and believe in, this, in the gospel. That is, believe in him. Matthew 4.23 says a similar thing. Jesus was going throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus' ministry was a gospel-teaching ministry. And that's what was his focus. It was his priority. Among the many things that the church of Jesus Christ can do today, our priority never should be removed from. It should never be made a side issue, maybe one of three or two or three, four thing issues, but it should be the priority, the only issue, the main issue, the the eternal issue of the church is that we will be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom. This is our priority in ministry. We must be a gospel teaching and preaching ministry. Yes, the world might want to talk about, let's talk about the kingdom blessings. And we can talk about that. We can talk about social issues. I love our, our class, the Christian in the world. We've been addressing some of the issues about what God has to say about some of these social issues and how we are to relate with them and think through them. And we have answers but we must tell of the good news of Jesus Christ who offers citizenship in his kingdom for all who repent of sin and believe in him, him who died for our sins and rose from the grave. See, the gospel is the solution to the, to the world's ills, you know? It, it does provide the answers, except that it comes only through the king. The gospel is the strength for our daily trials, and the gospel is the salve for life's pains. I know in this past few weeks we had some of our members lose loved ones. I remember losing a loved one, our loved ones over the years. And every time when we lose loved ones, the gospel becomes so much more precious each and every time. Does it not? The hope of knowing that the one whom we love, whom just passed into eternity, we have hope of seeing again. So the gospel that we teach and preach is not just so that people get into heaven. It's not just so you get saved. It's for all of life. We must preach and tell of Jesus Christ and him crucified. For there is no kingdom blessing without the king. But that was the problem with many who heard Jesus' teaching. They didn't want the king at least not the king that Jesus was presenting himself as. And this reveals a third characteristic of his ministry, and our final characteristic, final point, is that Jesus' ministry was characterized by hostile rejection. Hostile rejection. And we see it exemplified here in his own hometown. 
Jesus understood the heart of men. He understood their doubt of him. And so he, he understands that they're thinking, they're thinking with unbelief and doubt in their minds. So verse 23 and 24, <laughs> Jesus speaks to their heart issue. <laughs> you know, a lot of times I'll read this passage and I think, man, Jesus, everybody likes you after, you know, your first sentence. You just end right there, right? Everybody likes it. But Jesus is, never, is not satisfied just to get people to like him, see? He wants to get their heart. And so he reveals their heart in these two verses. And he said to them, no doubt... You will quote this proverb to me. This was a saying in the common in those days. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever you heard was done at whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. By the way, just verse 23 indicates that uh, he had already appeared at Capernaum. And if you compare it to the other synoptic gospels, that we actually find out that, that Luke does not put these two events in chronological order. In fact, it's very likely that what we're going to read about Capernaum in the next section actually occurs before uh, this section in uh, this event in Nazareth. But Luke puts it first because of uh, his, for his thematic purposes. He wants to show the spirit-empowered ministry of Jesus and how that is an indicator of that he is the Messiah. That's why when he reads Isaiah 61. But what's more, he also wants to show that even in his hometown, he faces opposition, opposition, rejection that will, go, that will characterize his ministry throughout his ministry all the way to the end. But Jesus in Capernaum had done other miracles. We read about that in John chapter 4. But Jesus now knew that these people, these Nazarenes, even as he was preaching to them, didn't believe him to be the Messiah. And essentially they wanted him to prove it. Though he's just saying this, they're not saying it you know, verbally, but he knows their heart. And he hears what their heart is that they're thinking, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. Prove it, basically. Prove to us. Give us a sign. If you're the Messiah, show us. Because we know, we understand what you said there, that you're claiming to be the Messiah because you're saying it's fulfilled now. So show it to us. We heard you did miracles somewhere else. Do those miracles here. But really, if you notice, Luke is very specific. Jesus says here, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. They're not even thinking, whatever was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. It says they had heard it, but they really didn't believe it. Jesus knew their unbelief. He knew it because he'd been with them. It's not because of some, by the way, it's not just because of supernatural omniscience. He did not exercise that ability here. Simply, he lived with them for 30 years. You live with someone 30 years, you should probably know if they have belief or unbelief, okay? You, you should. You see it in the life. It shows in the fruits of their life. They had seen his life, by the way, for those 30 years. They hadn't, and, and this, is, this is all in stark contrast to how they'd seen him. They'd seen him, but had they ever seen him sin? No. Had he seen them sin? Oh, yes. They had experienced Throughout those 30 years, firsthand, his righteousness, his kindness, as well as his service. He was, the, he was the carpenter of the town. But they rejected him because, as Jesus identifies, because of a, a hometown bias against him. A bias where he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And that's, that bias against those who are raised in the home, in the, from their hometown is really a manifestation of pride. You know, I think about Pastor Roger. Pastor Roger's going to preach here next Sunday, <laughs> right from this pulpit. 
And this is Pastor Roger because he's our hometown you know, son, right? He's, he's this church son. He's born and raised here. And we all know him very well. We've seen him grow. Many of you have seen him grow up. And if he came here the next Sunday and he basically says, you are all sinners and you all need to repent, we'll say, boy, you're the sinner. I saw what you did in elementary school. I don't need to repent. I saw what you did. You know, okay, and that's, maybe it was just me that would respond that way. None of you, I'm sure. But the pride and arrogance, especially those of us who are older than him, who've seen him grow up, that's, that's that hometown bias. But if he comes here, just like Jesus, preaching the word of God, no matter who he is, if he's preaching the word of God, I, say, I should say, amen, let me obey that right now. I will repent because I am a sinner. Anyways, um, we move on. Jesus is aware of their hometown bias. He knows that that's against him, but he knows that the rejection is more than just hometown bias. It essentially boils down to their own prideful unbelief. And we know that Jesus realizes because he, he brings out two Old Testament stories to convict them of this, to bring conviction. 25 through 27 is this two Old Testament stories, very familiar. You grew up in a children's church, you hear these stories a lot, uh, these stories of Elijah and Elisha uh, as, uh, in our children's Sunday school. But I say to you the truth. In truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. So two stories. First of all, Jesus reminds them of a story that took place in the days of Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet uh, in the days of the kings. And Elijah and Elisha both, by the way, both uh, ministered in a period of time when uh, Israel was full of unbelief. They did not follow the ways of the Lord. They were uh, known for their Baal worship, for instance. Uh, and it was led by their kings in many ways. But Elijah was sent among all the widows that existed in Israel in those days. Elijah was not sent to any of the widows in Israel. But instead, he was sent to one widow in a place called Sidon. And Zarephath was the town. Sidon was the, kind of the, the region, the, the city area. Basically, this was part of the Phoenicia, the Phoenician Empire. This was a Gentile woman, is Jesus' point. That God did not send Elijah to any Israelite widows, but he sent him to a Gentile widow. We find this in 1 Kings 17, verse 7 through 16. You can read that there. But the second story is very similar. A very similar point is made in the days of Elisha, who followed after Elijah. Elisha had the opportunity to minister to, lep to lepers, but he was not sent to any of the lepers of Israel. There were lepers in Israel that day. But he was sent to a leper named Naaman. Naaman was actually a Syrian a general. Another Gentile. And uh, there's a, that story is in 2 Kings chapter 5. But eventually, and Naaman actually doesn't believe at first, but eventually he believes what Elisha has to say and, it, and is healed. See, both stories illustrate how God's prophets and blessings were sent to believing Gentiles instead of unbelieving Israelites. Now, you know, I understand. These stories just bring out, it was as Jesus was telling created a great offense to the Israelites who were listening. You know, the Israelites prided themselves on their, Jewish, their Jewishness, their, that they were descendants of Abraham. They were uh, children of the promise, 
They were descendants of, of Israel, Jacob and Israel. They had the Davidic covenant on their side. All these things were promised to them by God. But now Jesus was basically saying, calling out their unbelief, making them out to be less spiritual than Gentiles. Imagine that. He was saying to these people, these people he knew well, these were, these were basically faithful, Bible church attending believers or professing believers, okay? These were synagogue attenders with him. They were scripture readers. They read scriptures along with them. They were Messiah hoping people. They hoped in the Messiah just like uh, many, other, many others in that day. And they were most importantly descendants, seed of Abraham, physical seed of Abraham to whom the promise was made. But Jesus was saying the kingdom would not be theirs, but would be given to Gentiles. And that is where they basically, okay, Jesus, you've gone too far. At that point, they had, he, we see that reflected in the response to his words in verse 28. They said, no, you, the people, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They were filled with rage. Why? Because basically, to them, he was preaching a false gospel. He was saying that, no, the promises aren't for you. They're for Gentiles. He doesn't, they don't understand that he's pointing out their unbelief. And they, what they do, they, they were so angry. They, were, they basically considered him a heretic. And they didn't even wait for the service to end. They didn't want to say, well, you know, I have some points. That I want to disagree with you, talk about the sermon. Some of you guys, sometimes when you disagree with me, you come and talk to me. Or you send me an email later. You're welcome to. But they didn't wait for that. They just said, they immediately got up. Just, if you, just imagine it. Everybody got up. Just take them. And let's just take them off to the cliff right up there on Quintara. And let's just throw them down those stairs. That's what they were doing because Nazareth was on a hill. They brought him to the brow of the hill right outside the city, and they were going to throw him down the cliff. Basically, this was, this was an attempt at murder. They wanted to kill him. But what happens? Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I want to see these uh, when, you know, a movie's ever made, how that happens, you know. I just, uh, how did this happen? The whole mob is pulling him together, and he just kind of walks through the midst and goes on his way. Okay, but nevertheless, whatever it happens, whether they were confused, blinded, or frozen there, you know, in time, uh, Jesus walked through the midst, walked, goes on his way. God would not allow his son to die before the appointed time. God has sent him to die, but not at these guys' hands. God had sent him to die. He would die in the right time. Although Jesus would draw large crowds throughout his ministry, Jesus inevitably faced rejection throughout his ministry. Many crowds would come to him because of the miracles, because of the wonderful things he could do. They would like to hear his teaching, in fact, because he taught as one who was different from basically what they were hearing week in, week out. But when Jesus started teaching harder things, harder truths, calling people to discipleship, calling them to follow him, calling to, to hate other things in contrast to their love for him, to break with traditions that they had observed for so many years, he was constantly crossing over lines that they were not ready to cross because of their unbelief. They would reject him. And rejection was not just, uh, though often perceived, portrayed as being led by the religious leaders, and it was many times the religious leaders leading the, rebel the rejection of him, 
But nevertheless, at the very end, even when he was about to, uh, when he was put on trial, it was the people, his people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It was his own who came and says, when given the choice to save him or a, or a rebellious thief, they chose the, rebellion, the rebellious murderer. They chose, give us Barabbas. And what about this Jesus of Nazareth? Crucify him. Why? What has he done wrong? Crucify him. Is what the crowds cried. And that's what, that's what Jesus, Jesus was rejected in this way. And, you, and we sometimes think, well, boy, I hope nobody ever treats me like that. But what you, we actually find in scriptures taught is that those who follow after Christ, those who seek to serve him and f- fulfill his, the mission that he causes, can, should be and can expect to face a similar hostile rejection. Listen to what Jesus has to say to his disciples in John 15, verse 18 and following. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The reality and truth is that if Jesus, our Lord and Savior, faced hostile objection to his ministry, then we who continue his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, a gospel that calls people to still repent and believe, repent from sin and believe in him, should expect no less. I know for those of us in the American church, we have been blessed with prosperity. We have been blessed with basically relatively in contrast to the rest of the world, a lack of persecution. We've experienced in different ways, but it's not the same as the rest of the world. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, if you just read on you know, the websites, uh, Open Doors is one that uh, sometimes I follow, and we'll read about the persecuted church around the world. Persecution is the norm rather than the exception for Christians around the world. And we... Um, we should not be surprised then when the world hates us. Now, it may never come across, at least in this country, in, the, in, in a similar kind of fashion where they may attempt, you know, attempt to murder you. Though that, and sadly, that happens to our brothers. Uh, we've been just reading the news and, um, and around the world as well. But don't be surprised when the world hates you for saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Don't be surprised when the world hates you for saying that some behaviors, some thoughts, some lifestyles, some choices, some inclinations that we have are sin. Don't be surprised when the world hates you for saying that some good people in this very room that have been coming here for 30 years have been worshiping with us, have been reading the Bible with us, have been praying with us, have been oh, having the wonderful talks about fellowship with us are going to go to hell. Whereas someone out there who's on the drug addicted, who's on the corner uh, uh, down in, in, the, in, the, in the drug infested part downtown, who is going to be in heaven because the difference between the two is that one has repented of their sin and believed in the gospel and received the king and the other has not. Don't just come here for the blessings of the kingdom, for this community or, or the, the, the connections we have here and not receive the king 
brother, sister. This is, that's, that's the most powerful uh, application I could have for those of us here who have been regular tenors and who we, we fellowship in week in, week out. Many of you are come here so regularly. We know each other's faces. You have a spot right there in that seat. Nobody else is in that spot, right? That's your spot. Many of us, myself included. But if we come here and, we, and you have not believed upon Jesus Christ, if you have not turned from your sin, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, if you have not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave, if, I'm, if you've not done that, then you are in danger of going to hell, my brother, or professing brother and sister. You need to repent and believe in him now. I appeal to you. Don't be like the Nazarenes in their unbelief. Well, Jesus faced hostile objection because he was committed to a spirit-empowered teaching of the gospel. And that's, brothers and sisters, fellow workers of Christ, our mission is the same, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It means we need to have spirit-empowered gospel teaching, gospel preaching ministry. We need to make disciples by speaking the word of God and the power of God. But we, as we do this, we must be prepared to face rejection, obstacles, objections, because our Savior was too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement, this charge. Help us to go out boldly and to independence upon you. Seek out the opportunities to faithfully witness and testify of Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we have a connection with the world in the sense that the world wants the kingdom. Lord, perhaps give us wisdom to how we may be able to start there even. But Lord, do not allow us to ever de-emphasize the king who is an essential part of the kingdom. Help us to show and to tell others of how Christ, faith in Christ and the one who is coming in the, again is the ultimate solution for all of the world's ills and pains and aches. God, empower us as church. Help us be faithful and help us be prepared for rejection and, ob- and objection. Help us not to fight back. Help us to be, to, be, to be like Jesus, to be gentle and to continue proclaiming the good news of Christ. We know we live in a world full of people like just like all of us here once were. Sinners, lost, blind, oppressed, enslaved, helpless. But you in your mercy came and showed us your favor in Christ. You opened our eyes. Miracle of all miracles, we repented and believed. Father, give us the same compassion for the loss in our world. Help us be faithful to proclaim that gospel to others. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.